What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. I am Jordan, joined with Jared, and today we have a special guest, Dr. Steve Mason. How's it going, Steve? Hey, very nice to be here. Thanks. Uh, Dr. Mason is a historian who specializes in Christianity and ancient Judaism. Uh, some recent publications you might be interested in include Jews and Christians in the Roman world, history of the Jewish war, and Josephus in the New Testament. And he has like just a list as long as your arm of other publications. <laughs> so no shortage there. And he's also the editor on a project called Flavius Josephus Translation and Commentary, which makes it uh, him particularly well positioned for the topic we're talking about today, which is Josephus. Uh, so, yeah, thanks for coming on, Steve. We're uh, really excited to have you. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. Yeah. So uh, just some quick uh, synopsis of what we're going to be talking about and some expectation setting. We've had interactions on uh, the topic of Josephus, mainly with mythicists and other Christians who are mining him for their particular uh, debates. And we didn't know who was right. So naturally, we reached out to an expert. But part of what uh, differentiates an expert from a layperson like myself is an understanding of the context, not just the little piece that's of interest, but the whole, uh, the, the surrounding literature, what uh, the world was like when Josephus was writing and all that sort of stuff, which is important for understanding what he actually means. And so since we have an expert on, we're going to be talking about that context. We're going to be talking about uh, how historians view and use Josephus, what kind of methodology they employ. And then after we've talked about all of that, we're going to utilize that new information to talk about a particular part of Josephus that's of interest to, I think, our audience. Yeah. And just a little anecdotal story. I was telling uh, Dr. Mason about this before we went live, but uh, my grandfather was a Baptist preacher and uh, he had an old publication of Josephus' works and there was two cracks in the spine. And when you flipped open those cracks, it was to <laughs> the sections in uh, antiquities where Jesus is mentioned. And it just had the passage highlight and in, in, the, in the index on the side, it just said proof of Jesus. And so like, that's an that's example. All of, that's, that's, all, yeah, that's all you need. That's an example <laughs> of all the rest of Josephus's work just being ignored and all the context that is there and not really trying to fully grasp it and just going to it for the thing that you want to begin with. So, And that's not good history. So, no, <laughs> uh, Steve, why don't you tell us a little bit about who Josephus is? Why should we care about this person? Well, you know, we all love our, our subjects. And uh, so I don't want to oversell Josephus. <laughs> But, you know, he's the most important ancient author um, <laughs> outside of the Bible. Um, that's, what can I say? That's just a fact. Um, if, you, if you think that the rise of Christianity was the most important transformation of the classical world, you know, into the late antique, medieval, and uh, early modern world for a very long time, then Josephus was uh, adopted as the kind of wingman for the Christian project. Uh, he's indispensable. He's the one who describes all the background. I mean, everything you find in the Gospels, pretty much the names of the high priest, King Herod, Herod's descendants, Roman governance, uh, the geography of the area. Uh, Josephus is our main guide for all of that. That doesn't mean that he's correct in everything he says, but it at least points to the places where, for example, archaeologists dig. Uh, they, they do it with Josephus in hand 
uh, even if they end up disagreeing with him by what they find in the ground. So Josephus has always been that. He was taken into the Crusades, you know, when uh, Western European armies marched into the Holy Land. Uh, they went with Josephus in their backpacks. I guess it was a pretty gigantic text at that point, you know, not uh, some pocket edition or Back on yourself. <laughs> on yourself. Yeah, exactly. They, Maybe maybe actually on a you know a, a horse or something like that or mule, but anyway uh, he's the he's the man and and in particular uh, what the Christians liked was his vivid and detailed description of the suffering and destruction of Jerusalem because of course central to the Christian claim not for all Christian writers but for for most that made it into the mainstream. Uh, the idea was that God, the God of Israel, had uh, forsaken his own people, the Jews, Israel, and had transferred his uh, love and affection to those who followed Christ. And in order to show that, uh, Christian authors leaned on Josephus, although he doesn't say anything like that at all, of course, uh, not, a, not, not at all. His interests are otherwise. But because he describes the destruction of the temple in such detail, uh, writers such as Eusebius and Pseudohegesippus and later writers could grab him and say, look, uh, he's not even a Christian, so he's not one of us. He's not, he's not telling our story, but look at the suffering he describes. And then they add, well, that's obviously because the Jews rejected Christ. Uh, so that's, that's pretty much why Josephus was so fully adopted uh, by the Christians. And through the Middle Ages, then, he was uh, translated in late antiquity into Latin. And so that made him extremely popular also in the Middle Ages. When Latin was spoken in the West, you could easily cite Josephus. And Josephus' manuscripts uh, abounded in both Greek and Latin, uh, therefore, especially from the later Middle Ages onward. When the printing press came along, you know, translations of Josephus began, uh, more than a dozen translations uh, in the early uh, period after the printing press, and he was just ubiquitous. So people used to know their Josephus. If you go back to the 19th century, even um, Josephus was a very popular name for people, believe it or not, to, to you know, Christians to call their kids, uh, their male uh, children, Josephus, like Josephus Daniels, the famous uh, secretary of the Navy in the U.S., was the son of a Josephus Daniels. Uh, it was just a traditional name in the family because Josephus, not Joseph, but Josephus, uh, was uh, was a very respected name. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Kip Davis, I don't know if you know him. He says uh, Dead Sea Scrolls for the win. <laughs> That's more important than Josephus. Maybe we can put those two in a cage match later at some point. <laughs> so yeah. uh, listen, just to quickly address that, I'm not saying that Josephus is the most important text now, but he's the most consequential text in Western history. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, were not discovered until uh, the late 40s. So yeah, take that, Kip. <laughs> it's <case> closed. <laughs> uh, so when we're looking at Josephus as a source, like what sort of biases should we be expecting in him? Because every writer has biases, right, that we should be aware of when we're like reading it. And ancient sources are no exception. So what, what sort of like context was Josephus writing in that we should be taking into account? 
Uh, okay, I, I would put those as two different questions, context and, uh, and bias. Uh, a quick little rant uh, first on bias. Um, I'm not criticizing you for asking this because it's the most, one of the most common questions asked. And of course, people always say, oh, he's biased, right? Oh, th this is his bias. He would say that because he's biased. But that implies um, that there's, there's a possibility of not being biased. And if we think about what does the word mean, you know, it means a, a deviance or a deviation from a center. So you can, uh, you know, you have bowling balls that have a bias in them or, you know, uh, um, dice that are loaded, right, have a bias so that they'll land a certain way. It's, it's off true. It's off center somehow. So who are the people I'd like to know who, who don't have a bias? Uh, it's the thing is that I don't think it's a helpful way to describe human beings. And we don't describe ourselves that way, right? If somebody okay. said, well, you have this bias, I think most of us would say, well, don't try to put me in a box, you know? Biases <laughs> are things other people have. <laughs> yeah. A complex human being here. You know? You're trying to just define me in some way. And I think that's quite right because we are complex, but so was Josephus. So I don't think I can answer the question of his biases because that that assumes, uh, well, it, traditionally it's assumed a very, very simple idea of history, that history is just a bunch of clear facts. And Josephus skewed those facts because he had a bias. But Josephus wrote 30 volumes that have survived, and that's an index of how popular he was, that his writings were copied and recopied. Otherwise, they would have disappeared, right? And most ancient writers, uh, even the famous ones, Polybius, uh, Livy, Tacitus, we don't have their, you know, their full corpus because most of it was not copied. But Josephus was copied and we have 30 volumes intact. So uh, what I'm saying is 30 volumes is a lot of material. It's like, um, you know, on a shelf, it, it takes up a fair space. And it's very, it's very interesting and and uh, rich, multi-layered writing. So, how do you say, well, this is his bias? Anyway, so bias is one question, and I'd rather avoid that question because I think the only way to get to know Josephus, and even to scratch the surface, which is all I've ever done, um, is to really start reading his work and see what you make of it. Um, but the context is clear. Right, the context is clear. He uh, he was born into a wealthy Jewish Jerusalem family as an aristocrat, a priest, hereditary aristocrat. That is, so he inherited the status of being a priest. He was given a very good education. We know that because when he was just twenty, in his mid twenties, he was sent off to Rome on a diplomatic mission for which he required Greek. So he had to be quite competent in Greek uh, to do that. Uh, he went into the imperial court in Rome. So, you know, again, he had to be able to function pretty well and have the kind of confidence, cultural confidence to undertake such a mission. Then he returned in the mid 60s uh, of the first century. He was born in 37 uh, CE. He returned from that in uh, around 65, 66. And he was soon, because trouble was then brewing in Judea, he was sent, as still a young man, 2930, he was sent up to Galilee to, uh, well, he gives different accounts in his autobiography and the Jewish war 
about why exactly he went there. But anyway, he was to try to work something out because the Romans were now going to be bringing an army through Galilee. So uh, he, he was uh, arrested and caught in that sweep of the Roman army under Vespasian. He surrendered to Vespasian. He was kept in uh, chains for two years uh, from 67, July 1st or so, 67, until the middle of 69, when Vespasian decided to make a bid for empire to become the, em the next emperor. So after the year of the four emperors uh, with Nero's death in 68, and um, after, at, at some point in there, Vespasian decided, apparently with Titus's influence, Vespasian's son Titus, to uh, liberate him from chains. And he, uh, he, he uh, Josephus took over the family name of Vespasian and Titus. That's why he's often called Flavius, Flavius. Josephus, yeah, because that's the uh, family name of the Flavians, uh, Vespasian and Titus. And his name may even have been uh, Titus Flavius Josephus because it's Titus Flavius Vespasian um, in both cases there. So anyway, he's freed and he uh, still uh, is with Titus through the siege of Jerusalem. And then when that is all over, he goes with Titus to Alexandria in Egypt and then across the Mediterranean back to Rome. And he lives the rest of his life in Rome. And that's where he writes all those 30 volumes in Greek. So all the 30 volumes we have are written in Greek and they are seven volumes for the Jewish war, 20 volumes for the Jewish antiquities. One volume is his autobiography and there's a two volume essay on Jewish antiquity, which we misleadingly label against Appion. It's not really against Appion, one, one little section of it is, but it's really an essay arguing for Jewish antiquity. So that makes 30 volumes altogether. When he died, we don't know exactly, because uh, he, <laughs> he didn't live to tell us. Um, unlike Moses, he couldn't uh, describe his own death. Um, so he died in the, in the mid-90s or early 100s or something like that. So that's the context. Now, the, the narrow context is that he's writing in Rome, and this is really important because, of course, in Rome, after the Flavians have destroyed Jerusalem and they can't stop talking about it, they're celebrating it everywhere. They, they're issuing coins, you know, you die a capta, Judea capta. There's the uh, arch. I saw that at the yeah, forum when I was there. Yep. With the, with the uh, temple um, goods in there. Um, they, even the building of the amphitheater, the Colosseum, you know, Rome's most famous uh, tourist attraction. Apparently, not everybody agrees with this, but most scholars now agree that it had a, a, a an inscription, which one very clever scholar uh, read from, from holes in a stone and pieced together the lettering that went over those holes. It once said that this, this structure was built from the spoils of war. So that even the, uh, the, the Colosseum which was built by the Flavians, they claimed to be built out of what they'd gotten out of Jerusalem. So Josephus is living in, a, in an atmosphere. I think it'd be a little bit like after the invasion of Iraq uh, by the coalition of the willing back in 2003. Uh, if you were living in you know, the US or 
or Britain, and you decided to write a book saying, hey, you people are dumping on us and trashing us and making fun of us. Uh, I'm going to tell you about the nobility of my people, the Iraqis. I think that's something like the situation Josephus found himself in, because he begins his war by saying, all kinds of people are writing about this war, but they're constantly belittling us and making fun of us and humiliating us because they want to raise up the Roman side and make them look like superheroes. I'm going, I'm a, I'm a Jew, Judean, I'm a Jew, a priest who was there. Most of these people weren't even there. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you both sides of the story. So that's the, I, I could uh, bang on about this for a long time, <laughs> but this is basically the context of his uh, earliest work. That's so interesting because, um, sorry, Jordan, but it seems like I hear a lot of times, particularly in the skeptic and atheist community, that Josephus had been said to be extremely pro-Roman and writing to basically appease the Romans because, you know, he was under their control or whatever. So, yeah, this is an old view. Um, uh, scholarship in the field has abandoned it. Uh, that is, specialists who work on Josephus have known for 40 or 50 years that this doesn't make any sense uh, anymore. It was an old view uh, based on the circumstances of his life. So people just thought, well, okay, he's his life is spared by the Flavians. He goes to Rome uh, with Titus. Um, I mean, who's going to oppose them? He must be, he must be a flatterer. Uh, but if you read his work, actually, <laughs> he undermines the Flavian story at all the crucial points. If you want, I'll give you a couple of examples. But, sure. Yeah. Um, so, for example, this is very clear. The Flavians claimed that, and this is very bold and 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 uh, brazen on their part. They said that they were the that Titus was the first guy who had ever been able to conquer this great fortress of Jerusalem and and uh, <laughs> and take in hand these fierce, you know, uh, tribal primitive Jews. This is, of course, <laughs> utter nonsense. And not least because the Romans themselves have been running. Yeah, I was thinking like Rome had conquered that region yeah. for a while now, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but that's what they said. And it, it's in Flavian poetry and it's on an inscription from the lost arch of Titus, which was in the Circus Maximus, which a medieval visitor wrote down. And that, that arch has been uh, excavated recently, still un ongoing. Anyway, um, so this is complete nonsense. And Josephus makes a big deal of writing about the long history of close Jewish-Roman relations. So he is undermining completely the whole boast of the Flavians on that level. Second, uh, second example, and I'll, I'll close with this one but I could give you about a dozen more. Um, this one is, is crucial because the Flavians, although uh, Vespasian was recognized by the Senate only on 22nd of December of 69, after Flavian forces had defeated those of Vitellius, the previous emperor, when the Flavians came to power, they backdated their uh, dies imperi, their you know, ascension day to power, until the 1st of July of 69, by six months. Why did they do that? Well, because they claimed that um, 
Tiberius Julius Alexander, who was, by the way, Jewish, but he was also the governor of Egypt uh, in, uh, in that time, uh, that in 69, that he had taken the initiative to recognize Vespasian as the emperor. So he had basically stood up against Nero, or, or pardon me, Vitellius is still the, the emperor. And Tiberius Julius Alexander had uh, administered an oath of allegiance to Vitellius. But according to the Flavian story, he decided, no, this guy's hopeless. Um, you know, God, the gods are with Vespasian. We have no choice. All the armies are with Vespasian. So I'm going to administer the oath of loyalty to Vespasian, which was a hugely, you know, dangerous, rebellious act. But the Flavians said, well, he did it. And because he did that, and he was kind of so inspired to do that, that's really the beginning of our legitimacy and our, our power. So they backdated that to uh, 1st of July. Josephus completely undermines that story. He blows it to, to pieces by saying that, in fact, it was Vespasian's own soldiers in Caesarea who forced him to accept uh, a bid to uh, imperial power. And he didn't want to because he was afraid. He was a scary cat. Uh, he, <laughs> he didn't want wow, that's That's didn't, bold. <laughs> yeah, it's really bold. Uh, what Josephus' description is that the soldiers surround him and stick swords at his throat and say, you will either live nobly and accept what we're telling you, or you will die. We, we will, we, you don't deserve to live right now. This patient says, okay, you're persuasive. Uh, I, I, will, I will do it. Uh, and then in Josephus's account, he writes to Tiberius Alexander and says, look, my soldiers have kind of forced me to do this. I didn't want to do it, but you know, I have to make this bid. Would you support me? Because I think it will be very helpful. You have two legions there in uh, Egypt. And this, so this is well after 1st of July now. Uh, the, Tiberius Alexander writes back and says, you know what? I checked around and I, I agree you're the best thing going, so we'll support you. But so the, the whole foundation of the Flavian myth, the Flavian story, is completely blown apart. That's, uh, those are two you know, huge things. I'll just mention very quickly that also his portraits of Vespasian and Titus are not exactly flattering. Uh, they are not overtly critical, of course, because that would be foolish. He's writing while Vespasian is emperor and Titus is vice regent. So, he, you know, it would be crazy for him to criticize them openly. But he describes them as two very different men. Uh, Vespasian, a very cautious, kind of grumpy, um, tough, uh, realist sort of guy, very shrewd and very cautious. And Titus, uh, his son, as kind of the opposite, as extremely gullible, naive, tricked easily. Um, and, and he doesn't pull any punches. He, he says quite openly, Titus was tricked here and there, and he screwed up over here, and Vespasian screwed up over here. Uh, he's not as flattering toward Vespasian and Titus as, say, Tacitus is. And Tacitus is writing a generation later after they're all dead. But even he, you know, praises them, says uh, they had great fortune and, they, you know, Vespasian was a great general. They say more 
those guys, Tacitus, Suetonius, Cassius Dio, say more uh, uh, flattering, even Pliny the Elder says much more uh, flattering stuff about the Flavians. And Pliny's writing in 77, uh, a contemporary of Josephus, than Josephus does. Uh, he doesn't match their kind of outright flattery. He's much more cautious. Wow, that's really interesting. I think I mentioned, or Jared mentioned backstage and anyone's watched podcasts. This is like my favorite part of all of human history. So I could listen to these stories forever. Uh, okay. But... Uh, well, I'm uh, your man. I could go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so as a historian, when you're approaching the works of, of Josephus, uh, what, what sort of methodology do you use when you're answering specific questions or like with the kind of puzzles that he presents, how you're solving them? Can you like give us a glimpse into how a historian approaches these works? Yeah, uh, sure. That's that's my job. That's my <laughs> job. So, um, again, how much time you got? It's, uh, uh, let, let me try to. Uh, here, I think the, the place to begin, if I can, very quickly is with a, an attempt to give a picture of what a historian, at least one like me, does um, every day, because there's a widespread misperception. I mean, we all came through uh, school and had to take history in school, uh, high school, say. So we come out with an idea of what history is. And for many of us, it's just like somehow in a foggy way, the 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 record of the past or, you know, information about the past, all the stuff about the past. Um, what I want to say is that if that were the case, if historians were just people who had to kind of memorize some a lot of data about the past, I don't know any historian who would choose this as a job. Uh, that's not what we do. It, it's really investigation uh, into the past. And Therefore, I would say we have two main tasks, and I'm going to come back to your question about Josephus because he fits exactly into this two-part uh, scheme. We have two main tasks. So, how do you, how on earth do you investigate, you know, what happened 2,000 years ago, when I don't even know what's happening next door to me here, uh, or you know what the government is doing? I have no idea what's going on around me today. It's okay. The government doesn't know what they're doing either. So. They're, they don't <laughs> But that's when we have tons of information, right? I mean, we're actually living here. So it's not like we have a shortage of, of, of data, but we don't know what's going on. So how on earth can we claim or expect to know what happened 2,000 years ago um, in Judea and the edge of the Roman Empire? Well, it's not an easy question. And, and I think the, the basic method, at least in the humanities tradition, so history bifurcated in the 19th century between the social sciences and uh, and the humanities right and they really went in two different directions i'm not going to talk about social scientific kinds of history economic uh anthropological sociological uh i'm not going to talk about that but in the humanities tradition uh it went something like this and goes something like this okay what are we trying to do well like uh, there's a famous line in the Roman uh, poet uh, Terence, I'm a human being and nothing that is human is alien to me, right? I, I, I consider nothing human alien to me. What we do in the humanist tradition is we want to understand human beings. We want to understand human actions in the past and the 
the, the reasons for them, the motives behind them. It's not just like a catalog of events. They don't matter. So for example, uh, if you ask the question, did Julius Caesar cross the Rubicon River in January of 49 BCE? Uh, yeah, probably did, because that's the best explanation of the evidence. Who cares? <laughs> um, because lots of people cross the Rubicon River in January, February, March, April. Right. Yeah. That's just what uh, R.G. Collingwood called the outside of the event, right? It's just the shell. It's just the, yeah, it's just a mere datum. What matters is not that he crossed the river like everybody else did. It's what it meant, right? It's right. the human meaning. It's both his intention in crossing the river his decision to cross the river and all that that meant and the reaction to it from the Senate, right? How did they respond to his crossing the river? So the event itself, you know, just the datum is, is not very interesting. And that's what historians are after. So when we look at Josephus, well, so step back from Josephus for a second, we've got two main tasks. One is, that a bunch of stuff has survived from the first century and even from Judea, right? Um, material remains, coins, inscriptions, uh, building remains, uh, pottery, uh, some stuff has, has survived. A literary text, Josephus, um, a few others, Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, first century BC, more second century BC. Um, so we have, we have stuff right, that has survived. So job one for the historian is to understand what has survived. Uh, so if it's coins, we try to figure out what does that legend mean? What is, what is that image on the coin? Why is that image there? And you compare it with other coins. You look at conventions of the day. You just try to interpret. But the reason I'm stressing this is that side of the historian's task is focused on stuff we can see. And the test of whether we're right or not about it is in what we see. So, for example, if you if you have an interpretation of an inscription, uh, the test of whether it works or not. So, for example, Pontius Pilate, there's a, a, a little partial inscription with part of his name on it from Caesarea. So then scholars debate, well, what was this thing, this piece of stone that his name is inscribed into? Was it part of a, 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 a watchtower or a lighthouse or, or a temple of some kind or whatever? Like the marker outside his house, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Name tag for mail delivery. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so that's so, so interpretation, just trying to understand the darn thing. Well, with a literary text, that means, you know, what is this text about? What's the structure of it? What are its themes? What is, its, what is its rhetoric like? Um, how does it work? Why did the author write this thing? What's he trying to achieve? Who were the audience, right? So that, that's one thing is just trying to understand what has survived. That's the biggest part of the historian's task because if we don't do that, we can't do anything else. But once we've done that or while we're doing that because it's a never ending job, uh, on the other side, we're well aware that, first of all, hardly anything has survived from the ancient world relative to what once existed, right? So only little bits and pieces have survived. And uh, each one of them only gives us a kind of side glance into aspects of, of, of 
you know, really lived life. Even a literary, or especially a literary text, uh, Tacitus, a uh, great historian, but he had very distinct reasons for writing. He had an audience, he had a context and a, a literary register he was going for. He wasn't a video camera, right, into everything that was somehow happening up from a satellite view of what was happening in Rome. He's, he's choosing very selectively uh, the information he has access to, and he's shaping it into a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's what Josephus is doing, too. So when we interpret this stuff, that's our first job. But then we realize there's a whole ton of stuff behind the text and behind the material remains that that we don't know. So how do we figure that out? Well, there's only one way. And that is we conduct specific investigations into problems. So just like scientists in this respect, you know, you 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 configure a problem. What is it that I want to figure out? Right. So, for example, who was Pontius Pilate? Uh, what was his what was his mandate in Judea? Well, we have all kinds of accounts of Pilate. We have them in the Gospels. We have one in Philo of Alexandria. We have a couple in Josephus. We have that inscription I mentioned, and we have coins from Pilate's uh, terminal office. So each of those things needs to be interpreted first and understood for what it is. But none of that tells us who Pilate actually was. It doesn't even tell us his dates in office, or it doesn't tell us, uh, well, Josephus kind of does tell us his dates in office, although these are debated because of various factors. So when we go to try to figure out the real pilot, we have only one option. We have to pose specific questions, like, for example, what was his relationship with Jerusalem's leaders? What was his relationship with the legate in Syria, uh, the, the super governor who was a senator? What was his relationship with the emperor? Uh, Tiberius. Um, we can ask these specific questions and then we gather the evidence that has survived. And then, and here's the tricky part and the part that makes people get all nervous is we have to use our imaginations. Um, this is exactly what scientists do, by the way, right? I mean, they look at the data they can see, the, the phenomena they can see, but then to explain it, they need to hypothesize what's the best explanation of what I'm seeing here, right? And this is then the job of the historian ultimately is to reconstruct the past and say, okay, well, what if, what if Pilate really hated the Jews, right? He just, for some reason, I, we don't know why, maybe it's just in his family or whatever, but he really hated the Jews. Okay, how would that explain all the evidence we have. How would it explain the images on his coins? Are they meant to be offensive images, for example? Uh, it would explain uh, the passage in Philo because Fi that's what Philo says. <laughs> he was basically hating the Jews. Uh, but it wouldn't explain so easily the gospel accounts or Josephus's accounts in the war in the antiquities. It might not explain the coins. It depends how you interpret the coins. So you've got this back and forth between interpreting the evidence, which is one kind of task, and it is governed by the evidence because we can see it, right? So that's what we have to explain. The other task, hypothetical reconstruction of what lies behind the texts, uh, it can't be so easily uh, verified. Then we have to argue, right? We have to make complex arguments. Well, if this was the case, 
then I think, you know, I think, for example, I think he hated the Jews, but the Christian authors of the Gospels shaped, reshaped that because they had apologetic motives for doing that. That's one line of argument, right? But another argument would be, no, he was uh, sympathetic with the Jews and wanted as a good governor to keep the peace and get along with them. And that's why you end up more or less with what's in the Gospels. Uh, whereas Philo had a strong motive to contrast him as a bad guy with the good guy, Tiberius. Uh, so you can, you can configure these different ways, but you have to explain the evidence. And at the end of the day, you've got to convince those who know the evidence that this is the best explanation of the evidence. So I would say those are the two main uh, tasks of the historian. So when it comes to Josephus, therefore, that's what we're doing. We're just treating him like any other account. We are, first of all, trying to understand what he was up to, why he was writing, what access to information he had, how he was shaping it, what were his purposes in writing. That's one thing. And we test that by seeing how well it explains his writing. So, for example, if you see him as a mouthpiece of the Flavian regime, I've already given reasons to think that that doesn't work, right? That, that doesn't explain what's in the text. So that's one question is how do you interpret Josephus? The second question is, which is completely different, now how do we explain uh, the events that lie behind Josephus's account? And here we need to imagine hypotheses that will explain him. Um, yeah, I'll stop there. Um, so to read that back, uh, the way that the historian goes about this in kind of contrast to what uh, people might think is it's not memorizing a list of facts and then regurgitating them on command. It's, <laughs> it's uh, using uh, the, the knowledge of those facts and the human story behind them to try to answer questions that don't survive explicitly in our sources. Like we only have a small slice of what actually happened in history and what we'd like to know the rest. So what hypothesis of that rest best explains the things we do have? Exactly. Can I can I give you another example that yeah, I can do it briefly if it'll sure. Yeah. Okay. So you, your audience may have heard of uh, Cestius Gallus. So he is um, the the top level governor of Syria at the time of the when the revolt breaks out, and he leads a military expedition from Antioch in Syria all the way down to Jerusalem in the autumn of sixty six C.E. And then he gets to Jerusalem, he stays a week, doesn't get into the city, turns around, goes home. And it's like a three-week march uh, all the way down, and he just turns around, goes back. And on the way back, he goes through, he leads his 12th legion through the uh, steep pass at Beit Horon, in going from the hills down to the valley to get out quickly to return home. And the Jews, the militant uh, groups of the Jews, ambush his soldiers because they're trapped in this steep defile, they are able to kill a bunch of them. Now, on the lid, so this account is only in Josephus. It's only in his war, book two of the war, okay? So one task is to understand what Josephus is doing with that story, right? Which is one thing. And you can see his themes, his language, his, uh, his structure, you can see how it plays a role in his war as a story, right? That's one thing. But it's a completely separate set of questions that one can ask about Cestius Gallus. Who is this guy? 
what was his relationship with Nero? What was his, he's a senator. What's his relationship with the rest of the Senate? Did Nero give him a mandate? Did Nero give him cautionary instructions? This is the time of senatorial conspiracies we happen to know from other evidence against Nero. So was, was he involved in them or was he suspected of being involved? Nero was asking other governors of his type to commit suicide at this time to the, the governors of, uh, of Germany, the two German provinces and Corbulo who had just won a great victory in this region in the East for Nero, he, was, uh, he had to die. So what, what effect did that have on Cestius Gallus? His junior governor, Gessius Florus, who's only an equestrian, has been raiding the temple and causing a lot of problems in Judea. What's the relationship between these two guys, right? What's the relationship between Cestius and the leaders in Jerusalem? He had been down at Passover to visit Jerusalem. It seems that he had a good relationship with them and with King Agrippa II. So this whole network of relationships uh, Josephus doesn't describe any of this stuff, right? But if you're a historian, you're saying, well, there's a real life human being behind these accounts. And I want to know what, what's he thinking? Why did he turn around so quickly and go home? Was he incompetent? Did he have military experience? Uh, was he a useless commander? Had he not planned properly? Or was he planning something and confident it was going to happen and it didn't? And he had to give up and come back to try again. So the, th this is what I mean by two completely different tasks. One is interpreting Josephus's story of him, and that we can test by the story that we have. We can read it. We can see it. But then there's this whole vast realm of historical problems uh, that, that are pretty much endless. Like we can ask any kind of problem, uh, any kind of question we want, we can we we can notice a problem that we want to investigate, uh, and that's not easily solved. We have to then uh, kind of triangulate and and show other experts in the field why we think this is the best explanation, right? <laughs> so, um, so on your uh, to your question of what kinds of what kinds of problems or how do we how do we use Josephus, uh, and what kinds of problems does does the use of Josephus throw up? Um, I think it's just the same in principle as with any other ancient uh, historian. It's just like this. We're doing these two kinds of uh, two kinds of things. Yeah. Now I want to know why he turned around. I need to go look into that. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, can, I can tell you very briefly that the vast majority of scholars have said he was a nincompoop. <laughs> Uh, uh, that, he, <laughs> that he was just totally incompetent. But ne never credit it, to malice. What can be uh, explained by incompetence? <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But I don't think that. I, uh, I having made, the, I, I raised that example because I, I made a pretty thorough investigation of it. And in my 2016 book on the Jewish War, I argued that no, no, not at all. Um, he just had a different purpose in mind. He thought he would be admitted to Jerusalem. And he had good reason to think that. He had King Agrippa with him. Agrippa had sent a force just shortly before that had been admitted to Jerusalem. He was coming with a whole legion. So, and he didn't make any plans for a siege. He had not established uh, supply lines or anything like that, not because he was incompetent, but because he was pretty sure he could just march in and settle the issue. When he found the gates completely shut and he realized 
in October that he would have to begin a siege if he were to get in. He said, there's no payoff in that. I didn't come planning a siege. So he turned around and went home planning to return in the spring uh, when it would be, you know, he could, he could plan for a siege if that was now necessary. So that's, that's uh, my take on it. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. convinced. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, uh, great. So uh, now armed with this uh, better understanding of the, the right way to look at Josephus, if you don't mind, uh, do you think it might be a good time to jump into one, the specific example that people might be uh, familiar with the Antiquities 20 passage, which yeah. for anybody who happened to stumble into this live stream with no idea what we we're talking about, uh, the passage in Antiquities 20 is one of the ones that happens in Josephus that uh, mentions Jesus, uh, the Jesus of the Gospels. And so the question is, is that authentic? Uh, what's Was it an interpolation? Was Josephus making it up? What's up? Uh, yeah, and I think as it leading in, one question I have as well as... Um, it, it may seem like we have the original writings, like the original manuscripts from Josephus, but obviously we don't. And so part of this question also too is what what role does textual criticism play in determining if this is an interpolation by later by Eusebius? It is the original writings of Josephus that kind of comes into that as well. Yeah, yeah. Good. I'm glad you asked, uh, Jared. Uh, I should probably first, unless you guys have already uh, dealt with this in previous uh, podcasts and people already know, but I should very briefly say what textual criticism is. Right? You should, because yes. <laughs> it's, it's not obvious to, because normally you, a lot of, I've seen people who are not in the field think that it just means the criticism of text. Right? It's like Siskel and Ebert, but for text, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like film criticism, textual yeah. criticism, yeah. Yeah. Uh, literary criticism, that's not it, right? Yeah. In, in the field, there is a technical meaning of this term, which is, that when we're dealing with ancient text, we, as you said, Jared, we do not have the originals. In fact, um, there may have been many originals. That is, ancient writers often revised, uh, you know, kept working on their text. So there may have been any number of originals um, at any point. But anyway, all of them are long, long gone. Uh, it doesn't really matter because they're they're lost to us. And the earliest complete Greek manuscripts we have, well, the earliest Greek manuscripts we have of Josephus are from the 10th century. So this is already almost a millennium uh, after he wrote. So that's kind of sobering, uh, unless you compare it with almost all other ancient ancient texts, in which case sometimes it's even you know more dire. Uh, we often have only one manuscript uh, that happened to survive uh, of, of a text. And we cling to that and say, wow, we're so, we're so lucky. But they're all basically medieval uh, manuscripts. So the scribes who happened to be Christian uh, scribes were very busy uh, copying those texts that they had some interest in that, that appealed to them for some reason and they thought should be copied. Um, how were they copied? Uh, two ways. Uh, one common way, the most efficient way, was in a room called a scriptorium, where you would have uh, somebody at the front reading out the text, and you'd have I don't know, 10, 20, 15, a dozen uh, scribes sitting there writing down what they heard. Um, that sounds absolutely miserable. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And there are, there's good evidence that this is what the scribes also 
uh, felt that they were often uh, falling asleep or not paying good attention. You find lots of, uh, especially actually in New Testament um, uh, textual criticism, you find many cases where, because we, we have like in the New Testament, we have like 5,400 manuscripts, something like that. It's just unbelievable and very early as well. Uh, the earliest fragments already from the second century uh, because these were such, you know, such important texts and earliest complete manuscripts from the fourth century already. So that's a, that's a much better situation. But there you can also see the kinds of errors that creep in from mishearing words that sound alike and somebody's kind of drifting off. Oh, the other way is, of course, reading. So you've got one text here and you're copying it over. And there, the problem can be that um, typical problems that we also have with our own text, right? You skip a line because two lines end with the same word, right? For example, so you skip one out. Or uh, in that case, in, in, in the earliest phase of copying, you have people using capital Greek letters uh, all run together, continuous script with no word divisions. Because if you know the language well enough, uh, and with, especially with Greek, which has um, case endings on words, it's, it's inflected. So you should be able to see with so relative ease where the words end. But as a matter of using space efficiently, uh, they just ran all the words together. So, um, you know, you have because you're using capitals, the problem is that words, uh, letters can look alike, like a, a capital delta looks exactly like a capital lambda, except there's a crossbar, right? And the, mm -hmm. the delta at the bottom. And similarly, uh, capital, it depends how the A is written, the alpha, uh, it depends what style it's written in. But if it's early enough and written in the kind of rectangular style, it can look like a, a, a lambda as well. Or, you know, you have others that, that look the same way, maybe, maybe a, an N, a new, if the cross, if the diagonal is missing, it could look like two eyes, that kind of thing. And then you have different possibilities when people misread these texts uh, of, of, you know, what they think they're reading. So um, these are, these account for uh, many of the variants. So when we come to uh, Josephus, we have these, uh, here's a cross between what I was describing before as the historian's two main tasks. One is reading what we've got and the other is imagining what lies behind it, right? Textual criticism is a perfect example of both sides of this. It's a kind of unique um, sub-discipline because it involves both cases. So, for example, we have manuscripts which are found, which are kept in European libraries in you know rare rare book rooms with climate control and all that. Uh, these the, that's where these manuscripts are. So, in principle, we can go and look at them. Probably won't be allowed to look at them, but most of them are are, are digitized now. So um, you can, you know, you can find copies online, but even still, it's hard to navigate because they don't come with neat, uh, you know, reference numbers in them. You have to actually, you know, re read through them. These manuscripts do have word divisions because they came later. They came in the medieval mm -hmm. period. But back in the ancient world, you had continuous script. Uh, and that's where a lot of the problems arose before you get to the later manuscripts that we have. So we can, we can in principle, look at them. Uh, but then the problem is that they often, often, I mean, really every sentence almost has one or two little, little differences among the manuscripts. Um, 
And that the vast majority of these are not important. So actually, uh, I think I sent you a file. Uh, are you able to pull up that file I sent? Yes, uh, I have it here. Share we can actually, real quick. Actually, we can actually look at this passage we're talking about, Antiquities 20, uh, because what I want to show you is that we we scholars don't have to go every time we have a question, go you know take a flight to uh, to Bern, Switzerland, or Rome or something. Unfortunately, <laughs> we, we don't get to go and just fly around to look up the original manuscript. Uh, well, you know, I have to see this manuscript. Oh, I have to go to Switzerland. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> exactly. uh, fortunately, uh, very enterprising, of course, German scholars in the in the 19th century um, put together a what's called a critical edition. And this is by uh, Benedictus Niese is his name, uh, with the help of others. We call it the Nisa text. It's still used generally by scholars. So what this is, is you can see on the bottom part, the really congested part, uh, two thirds of the way down each page, you can see that uh, he lists the manuscripts that are available or that he's working with uh, to give the readings here, right? So he mm -hmm. lists them by letters in the top line on each side, right? And then uh, he lists the main variations between them. So he gives you the abbreviation of the manuscript after the uh, difference that it indicates. Difference from what? Well, where the texts agree and where it looks straightforward, he just uh, gives you that, that text. So it's like a composite text. Uh, up in the main window there, and I've put a, mm -hmm. a red, I've put a red frame around Antiquities twenty one ninety seven to yeah, so that's Antiquities one uh, twenty one ninety seven to two o three. That's the passage we're talking about that involves uh, the death of James, the brother of Jesus. Um, so what you see there is that there are hardly any, uh, there, there are a bunch of variants below the green lines below, the horizontal lines are the bits of variants that relate to the part we're looking at above. And what you see there, I've, I've highlighted a couple of them, for example, uh, in the main text. So where the blue lines are, you see that he's printed the text, the first one, yeah, the, the first one up there uh, says uh, priesthood. Well, the subject is high priesthood, right? But mm -hmm. one of the manuscripts just has priesthood. So hirosune rather than archirosune. And uh, so the later manuscripts looks like corrected it to archirosune because that makes better sense. Uh, high priesthood. So he tells you down in the bottom that this is what these other manuscripts say. But he chooses Hirosune because it's the more difficult reading. That is to say, it's the more problematic one. And you can understand why, if that's what Josephus wrote, or that was in the earlier manuscripts, you can understand why the later manuscripts changed it to uh, high priesthood, right? Because that fits the context better. It's harder to understand why. Yeah, the reverse. If If... The early manuscript had said high priesthood. Why on earth would somebody change it to priesthood, right? So you, this is the kind of what I'm what I was talking about, hypothesizing the best explanation. If X were the 
original situation, then how would that explain what came later? And uh, here in the, the second one, you have the Greek word pente for five. And what this is saying is that Ananus, the high priest Ananus I had five sons. And Josephus says they all attained the high priesthood. Um, well, uh, the Latin translation of this drops out the five. But in this case, uh, Nisa thinks we should keep the five because it's in all the Greek manuscripts. And it's a perfectly sensible comment because we can actually trace five sons of uh, Ananus who were high priests. But you can also understand why the translator, the Latin translator, might have dropped it out because perhaps he couldn't. I mean, we scholars investigating this can figure out who was a son of Ananus and track five sons. But that might not have been evident to the translator uh, back in the fourth century, the Latin translator. So the Latin text drops it out. That may be the explanation. He, he was suspicious. Did he really have five sons? That can't be right. Maybe he thought it was a mistake. So he just, the Latin drops it out. But it's easy enough to see why the five would drop out. Not so easy to see why someone would stick it in, right? So in this case, it goes the other way. Um, and you prefer the, the five. So, so that's what we're looking at. Uh, there's no big problem with the text. The, most of these uh, variations that you see on the, on the bottom right side are just word order things. So is it uh, the, the one who was called uh, Christos or Christos, the one who was called? In Greek, it can work either way. Uh, so, you know, you have, you have variations. And they're not all manuscripts. You see also E-U-S in there. That's for Eusebius uh, because Eusebius quoted this passage. And so one relevant question is, what did he see in his text when he quoted it? But of course, we're then reliant on manuscripts of Eusebius. <laughs> we don't have Eusebius original writing either. So it's a complicated game. It's a lot of fun. Um, but as long as you're not too attached to outcomes. <laughs> and this is, this is an important point that I, I want to make, is that much of the, um, here's a distinction between what historians do in universities and what happens on the internet a lot. And that is, in universities, we generally, we have to privilege the process of doing history. That is the debates, the weighing of arguments. What you see generally on the internet is positions, right? People championing a view and saying, this is what I stand for. This is what I think happened and I'm going to defend this. And so you have debates, you know, between the person who holds this view and that view. And there's nothing wrong with a debate. I mean, if, as long as it's a learning exercise, but I have been if, known to argue on the internet from time to time. Okay. <laughs> well, this isn't per, this isn't personally directed in any way, but it is a it's a fundamental difference between. I mean, let me put it this way: you can't do history professionally if you are attached to an outcome. Mm -hmm. You just you can't do it because the nature of the beast is investigation, right? Um, open ended investigation. You you can't. If you, if you pretend to investigate openly when you already know the conclusion, then you're like, you know, the Southern sheriff in all those movies who, uh, who knows who the murderer is before there's been any, um, right. you know, any inquiry into it. 
uh, I know that guy's guilty. So, um, yeah, we'll hold an investigation, but uh, he's going to he's going to fry uh, that person there. That's basically the, the old <clears throat> the whole concept behind our channel is not coming to the table with the preconceived notion. Let us look at the evidence and let the evidence and the interpretations of the evidence kind of lead us to what is what is most probably true or not true. So, And if you find the evidence is different from what you thought before and you're wrong, then great. Just change your mind. You're not wrong anymore. Yeah. Too easy. you know. Or, and the, the, the main option for, alas, for most of us working with these questions is we don't know. Yeah. Um, Which is there always a valid answer. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. So um, when looking at Antiquities 20, um, it's a fairly short passage, but can you just give a brief overview uh, with the context of where it fits in with antiquities? Uh, yeah. What is happening here? What is Josephus trying to convey in this story? Yeah, sure. So antiquities is a 20 volume work and it is really structured actually in spite of, so two things are going on. One is it has a very clear thematic and structural kind of um, built to it, right? And that's because he announces in the prologue back in book one what his main lesson is in his history. He says, if you read this history, I'm going to show you that Moses' constitution uh, works universally. And, and what it shows is that those who follow the laws of God, which are the laws of nature as well, conveniently, uh, they prosper. Whereas those who do not follow God's laws uh, meet catastrophic failure. Uh, in everything they do. And, and this principle works through the entire 20 volumes. So that's on one side what he's doing. It's a very clear structure. Uh, the first 10 volumes are about the first temple. They end with the destruction of Solomon's temple. And the second 10 volumes are about the second temple. So they lead up to Gessius Florus and the eve of the war. And then he says, now go read my war, which I already wrote. Um, and, and it picks up from here and gives you all the details you want. That's a bit deceiving because actually the last three volumes of the antiquities or less, actually less eight volumes um, uh, repeat, but in a different way, in a much fuller way, what war one and two had already told. So it's not just that it leads up to you know, the, the, the threshold, and then you can go read war. It actually overlaps considerably, considerably with war. So that's one side of it, is that it has a very clear thematic picture. And for example, he devotes almost the, you know, much of book 19 to the death of Gaius Caligula, the, the Roman emperor, and the accession of Claudius after him, which King Agrippa I had a big role in. And the reason he does it, he says repeatedly, is this guy was bad news. He was he was uh, a rotter, you know, from the inside out. And I want to show you that he almost destroyed the Jewish nation. And we need to look at his miserable end, uh, the end that he came to as a as a caution about you know God watches human affairs and God really punish this guy, right? So, so that's all going on, these major themes. On the other side, books 18, 19, and 20 are at, at the same time a kind of, um, they're, they're not just a, a single continuous story. They're kind of a grab bag because he's trying to keep pace with everything that's going on in Rome, in, uh, in the Parthian Empire, in Jerusalem, 
uh, and he's coordinating all these things. So he keeps saying things like, well, meanwhile, uh, over here, the emperor did this, and that connects with this here, and he sent this governor out here, and then King Agrippa did this, and he knew him this way. But at the same time, over in Parthia, this was going on. So, for example, in Book 20, a big chunk of Book 20 is the story of how the Adiabenian royal family in what is now uh, sort of uh, Irbil in Iraq, in northern Iraq, they uh, adopted Judean law. They came to embrace Moses' constitution. And this fits with his major theme, that they prospered and they they uh, found that this was the best constitution of, of all legal constitutions. And they were in trouble because of that, but God uh, protected them, spared them, and they fully integrated in Jerusalem. Then he goes on to talk about just what's in book two of the war, uh, the, the uh, prefects or um, lower level governors, uh, Felix in the 50s, Festus in the end of the 50s, Festus dies in office, and then he is replaced by Albinus, Albinus, uh, uh, either 5960 or 59 to 62. And then Albinus is, uh, um, uh, oh, pardon me, Festus, Festus, uh, 5960 uh, or 59 to 62. He dies in office. Then Albinus comes either 60 plus or 62 to 64, depending. These are, again, historical debates. And then after Albinus, Gessius, Florus, and then the war. And that's where Josephus ends the antiquities with Gessius, Florus arriving in 65 or so. And he says, go read my war. Now, in the midst of all that, he's building a picture of doom and gloom. Uh, so he's also kind of hyping up what will be in the uh, Judean war and the tragedy of Jerusalem's destruction. And he comes at it from various angles. He says there were rebel groups, there were uh, murderous groups such as the Sicarii who you know, carried concealed weapons and killed their enemies in the city. Uh, the priests, the high priests were, were doing awful things. Uh, one of them, was, uh, Ananias was very rich and he was actually sending out his thugs to uh, steal the, the tithes from other priests and they were starving. And then you had factions, militant factions like gangs fighting each other. So all this is going on and it's not a connected uh, story. Therefore he's going, and then this happened and then this happened. And then, you know, the, the emperor sent this uh, prefect and then King Agrippa. King Agrippa had the uh, role of appointing or deposing high priests. And Josephus has a, a very deep interest in the high priests because he traces them in antiquities all the way from Aaron, uh, Moses' brother, the first high priest, all the way through. And he pauses at the end of book 10 and at the end of book 20 to summarize all the high priests that have been since the beginning. Because remember, the book is about the antiquity of the Jews. So he wants to show that they, and he's a priest, right, himself. So he wants to show there's been this continuous line of high priests all the way through. The passage you're asking about, therefore, I finally come to uh, <laughs> the point is- it Turns out history is complicated, you guys. <laughs> it's a little bit complicated, but it, but it fits thematically 
with the, the story because he wants to show that this guy, Ananus II, who was, who was now made high priest, apparently in 62, possibly in 60, most people date it to 62, uh, that he did some terrible things as well. Uh, and then he was booted out after just three months and he was replaced by another guy named Jesus, son of Damnaeus. Uh, and, and then the story goes on. So some of these guys only lasted in office like three months because of their malfeasance and others lasted for like 10 years. So that's, that's part of the story. And that's what this account is about. I realize light is fading here. Can I just turn a light on? Can yeah, I sure. Try? No. And if uh, chat, if you have any questions, I start a couple uh, for later. We'll try to get to them at the end, or super chat them, or whatever. Uh, we'll try to yeah okay. get them at the end. All right. Okay, so that's uh, that's it, and we can look at the uh, the passage. I think I I sent it over a translation sure. of the passage as well, not just the Greek we saw before. Yeah. So not here's there. here's my. Let me know if that's too small for people to read. And this is your translation of the Greek. Uh, it is Dr. Mason. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you actually, want one of us to read it real quick or yeah please because it's a it's a bit small on my screen actually yeah sure yeah so we'll start at the top and again this is antiquities 20 and i also put a link in the description to not this description this uh, translation but another translation of the text so you can read along there if you want to uh so in antiquities 20 it starts with when caesar Nero, learned of Festus' death, he sent Albinus to Judea as a prefect. The king, Agrippa II, took the high priesthood, and we already discussed how that, uh, <laughs> that comes in, away from Joseph, and he gave it to the son of Ananus, who was also called, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher these, so I apologize in advance, who is called Ananus 198. They say that the older Ananus was uh, the, most the most fortunate person, for he had five sons, and it happened that all five of them served as high priest of God after he had first enjoyed the position for a long time, something that never happened to any of our high priests. Okay, so, so if I can pause there for a second, that that contextualizes it, right? So the reason I gave that long-winded explanation mm -hmm. before was to say this this fits in the story. It's exactly what he's talking about. He, he wants to chart who the successive high priests were, and he's going to tell you in typical style a little bit of gossip, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of whatever he knows about each one. Yeah. Okay. And then going on, this younger Nanus was daring and brazen by nature. He belonged to, there's some of that gossip, he belonged to the school of the Sadducees, which is, with regard to judicial issues, more cruel than all other Judeans, as we have already reported. And he references- Okay, so I can stop you there. Yeah, he doesn't, he hasn't actually put it like this before. But he sort of implied it back in book 13 when he was describing a um, John Hyrcanus breaking from the Pharisees. And he said that there was a, a banquet at which a troublemaker uh, said to John Hyrcanus, OK, someone has insulted you here. That's the back of the story. And, and uh, you should ask the Pharisees what punishment they would apply to this guy. And, and then he says the Pharisees are naturally lenient in punishments, whereas the Sadducees, it is assumed, uh, would want the death penalty. Uh, so that's in that story, but he hasn't actually said, as he does here, that the Sadducees are very cruel in uh, punishments, but you could sort of um, infer that from, from the story he tells, yeah. 
so, so that's interesting. Anyway, the, the, yeah, because this next, and Sadducee yeah. thing, yeah, yeah. So it's 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 again a um, well, my my main point is that it connects with the story, right? It's fully at home in yeah. this narrative. So in terms of that big job one that I was describing, interpreting the story makes sense, right? It, it fits with the story. Go ahead. And he's he's building this up because the priests themselves would have been Sadducees, and so that's why it's relevant. The high priests. The high priests, uh, yeah. Tended to be Sadducees, yeah. 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 Uh, continuing on, since that was his way, Ananus thought he had a suitable opportunity with Festusted and Albinus in route still to convene a court of judges and bring before it the brother of Jesus, the one known as Christos, Jacob, and in brackets as James, along with some other people. He accused them of having violated the law and handed them over to be stoned. Yeah. And stone meaning, of course, with stones, right? Not, 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 not Chichen Chong yeah. stone. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> I'm not the good kind. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here, um, so Festus has died, right? Albinus is on, on, on the way. And we find out in the next paragraph, it's a long, long trip. It could be several weeks from Rome. Uh, and he's coming via Alexandria. So he's not there yet. And so he's simply illustrating his point. This guy was very bold and he had a bunch of enemies and he wants to get rid of them uh, in the interim because once Albinus arrives, he has, to, he has to work with the Roman official. He can't just exercise his will. So he makes this very bold move to convene a court and get rid of these people. Now, uh, many of your readers uh, or viewers, pardon me, might not know or some might not know that the the name is actually Jacob, but in English we um, we have corrupted it to James because of the history of English. But in the Greek text, it's it reflects the Hebrew name Yaakov, right? So Jacob. But look at the um, the construction here. Uh, this is what I want to point out: is that it's very typical of Josephus. Um, he's the, the, he's. It's not about James. The passage isn't about James. It's about Ananus. And what a rotten guy he was, right? As a as a high priest, and how he screwed up. And the end of the story is he'll be replaced. But he has enemies, and he accuses them on the grounds of breaking the law, right? And there's a bunch of them, and he singles out one of them as an example. This is absolutely typical of Josephus. In fact, the entire antiquities, although it's called a history. The way Josephus writes it is as a kind of serial biography, right? He doesn't talk about, like scholars talk about the early monarchy, the later monarchy, and that kind of thing. That's not how Josephus writes the antiquities. It's all personal. It's about David, Solomon, or before that Moses, before that Abraham, each of the patriarchs. It's a biography of each person. And at the end, he usually gives a moralizing obituary about this person to say whether they were basically good, had some faults, whether they're basically nasty, but had some redeeming features. And he tries to be balanced in those obituaries, but that's how he constructs his story. And whenever he talks about a group of people, it's his habit because this was ingrained in uh, rhetorical training that you should not just say, ah, oh, there was a, a bunch of people who did this. You should take one example out and, make it vivid by, by mentioning a particular individual. And here, since he's already mentioned Jesus before, 
uh, he says, oh, one of them was the Jesus known as uh, Christos. His name was, was uh, Jacob, along with some other people. So there's other people involved here. It's not about the death of James. It's, he's only being used as an example of the people that Ananus got rid of. Yeah. So a couple things just to make sure people are tracking. Albinus being the prefect, that would mean he's the Roman who's in charge of the area. And that's why it's relevant that he's not around because yeah. the uh, Ananus feels more liberated to act in ways that he wouldn't be able to if the Romans were looking over his shoulder. Yeah, so this suggests, as the next paragraph says uh, plainly, that the that it wasn't possible for the Jewish court to just execute people uh, willy-nilly. That doesn't mean they couldn't unofficially kill people, but um, uh, as you know, pretty much always happens in any society. Uh, but in terms of legal mechanisms, they were they were expected to work with the Roman official who was based in Caesarea. And uh, earlier in Antiquities, in Antiquities 18, it, it says that when the first of those guys, whose name was Caponius, was sent out in 6 CE, he had the power of the sword. Uh, he, so the, that Roman official had the power of capital punishment and he wielded it. And therefore the Jewish leaders or any other group leaders had to go to him uh, to 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 get authorization for an execution. So and of while, course that fits, that fits with the story of Jesus' death as well, of course, the crucifixion, right? So while the Romans would let the local leaders adjudicate things, if it came to having to do an execution, the Romans reserved that for themselves. Yeah, a legal execution. Legal. Yeah. 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 Obviously according, a mob can do what it does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> according to this, I mean, this has been a debate. It's an older debate in scholarship, um, whether the so-called Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, had the power of capital punishment. Um, the Part of the problem is, was there a Sanhedrin? Was, was there a regular standing court? And that, that assumption has been overturned in a lot of recent scholarship. So Again, it's about interpreting the text and explaining the text. And the text tended, the text tended to be interpreted one way. So, for example, the, the Greek word synedrion is the root word that comes into Hebrew and Aramaic as Sanhedrin, right? It's a, it's a loan word from Greek. Um, so it was it, because there's a Mishnah tractate, a rabbinic tractate called Sanhedrin about the uh, legal procedures of the Jewish court. But that's a rabbinic text from from 200 years later or 150 years later, right? Um, so people tended to think they just assumed, and the way they read the Gospels as well led them to think there was a standing Jewish court. But uh, some very careful investigations in the 90s uh, argued that actually no, if you just read these texts by themselves without that assumption. Uh, a synedrion turns out to be an advisory council to a leading official, not a standing court, but something that is convened uh, by the official as a kind of council of advisors. Uh, but it, it's ad hoc. It's convened to support that person's uh, decision making, like a Roman concilium, uh, very much like that, right? Commanders would convene a council, not as a standing body, but as an advisory group, say, hey, I need your advice on this. What should, what should we do? 
So, um, so all of that's to say that the question of whether the Sanhedrin had the power of capital punishment is sort of a, a null question because there may not have been a Sanhedrin at all. Anyway, there was there was only the high priest, and there were these varying configurations of prominent people, and they had to work with the Roman governor uh, it, in order to make the wheels turn in society. And so moving from there to the end of the passage, uh, it talks about, I can read it out too, yeah. about what happens to uh, the high priest as a result of this. Those who were thought to be the most moderate people in the city and the most precise about the law were very upset by this, this being the thing that had just happened with the stoning. Uh, so they secretly sent to the king to urge him to write to Ananus not to do anything like that again, for they said he had not done uh, even his first act properly. Some leaders meet Albinus and Alexandria and informed him that Ananus had no authority to convene a court without his approval. Albinus, convinced by what they said, wrote angrily to Ananus, threatening to punish him. King Agrippa therefore took the high priesthood away from him uh, after he had held it for three months and installed Jesus, the son of Damnius. Right. Now, the king there is always Agrippa the second, because remember, he's the guy that Roman emperors since Claudius had given the right to appoint and depose um, high priests. So even though Jerusalem was not in his territory as king, his kingdom was up in the north and northeast uh, of uh, Judea, like beyond Judea. Uh, he was a Jewish king. He was the great-grandson of King Herod. Uh, and King Herod had been a tight ally of the Romans. And his grandson, Agrippa I, had been instrumental in Claudius becoming emperor actually, in Rome. So the Romans had a very close relationship with the Herodian family, and they gave the Herodian descendants, the most prominent one, in this case, Agrippa II, gave him the right to appoint and depose uh, high priests. So that's why you see this dual thing going on. The reasonable people of the city, the kind of you know sensible leaders, said, this is an outrage. He's, uh, he's violating the laws. They may well have been Pharisees, um, in fact, Josephus doesn't say that, but since there's a conflict between Pharisees and Sadducees, right, and this guy is said to be a brutal Sadducee, it, that this language about being precise about the laws is language Josephus also uses of the Pharisees elsewhere. So it may be that he doesn't bother saying it, that these were by and large Pharisees or Pharisee inclined. Pharisee curious or whatever, and they <laughs> and, and they objected to um, you know the, the, the this uh, outrage against the laws, or they didn't like this Sadducee guy, you know, being so um, being being so harsh. So they write to the king, King Agrippa, asking him to tell the high priest to cool it. Meanwhile, they also contact Albinus on the legal level, saying you know, this guy shouldn't be doing this without your approval. And it's quite interesting here that uh, Josephus actually um, uses language that suggests they are instructing him, uh, informing him that uh, this is the case, that he coming into his governorship doesn't even know exactly what, mm. the, what the rules are here. But they're saying, hey, don't you know? This guy. Hey, we know you're new here, so let's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to tell you how it is, and because then he hears them and he's convinced by what they said, right? And then he gets angry. Then he says, "Okay, now you've infringed my uh, my rights here." 
but it seems he didn't know that before. Uh, they had to tell him that this was his right. So it's actually quite interesting. It's like civil servants, right? Telling a new, uh, a new secretary of whatever, huh. uh, this, this is your portfolio here. Um, so yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. So, uh, as it stands, there's, uh, some questions that are that are brought up with relation to this passage. One of the questions that's often brought up, you mentioned that they replaced um, the existing high priest with Jesus, uh, the son of Damnius. And some people have questioned whether this makes sense. Like, why would why would the Jews have been so irritated that they killed if this is James, the brother of Jesus, a Christian, because the Christians weren't very popular uh, among the Jewish people. So why would this have caused such an outroar that would lead to a high priest being removed? Uh, that's the question that's asked. Is that a sensible question? Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I understand. I've seen it. I've read uh, I've read an article in, in this vein. I, I just don't understand it, um, to be honest. I mean, I think as from my perspective, as someone who deals with Josephus every day, um, there's no problem here. Um, he, back in chapter, in book 18 of the Antiquities, he described the execution of Jesus. Um, now, he didn't say everything exactly that's in our text there. There is some kind of a, an issue in the 1863 to 64 passage, the so-called Testimonium Flavianum. Uh, one of your grandfathers, uh, Jared's, um, one of his <laughs> favorite his, passages. I highlighted that. <laughs> right. um, so that th th there is some kind of an, uh, an issue with that passage, but I think it's still most likely that he said something about Jesus there. Uh, and if that's the case, then all he's doing here is saying this guy had a bunch of enemies and uh, wanted to get rid of them, and they included the brother of that guy I told you about before. So um, I don't I don't really see what the problem is. You know, there's a there's a kind of corroboration, possibly in Christian text, uh, with James, because in the, Paul's letter to the Galatians, it's clearly uh, the men from James who are insisting on the observance of Moses' law, even among Gentiles, and uh, uh, no fear. Viewers are familiar with the passage, but in Galatians 2, Paul describes how, uh, from his point of view at least, Peter, Cephas, uh, was uh, blameworthy because he was actually eating with Gentiles, non-Jews. And then some men from James arrived, and he got all nervous and, and backed away and thought he shouldn't be doing this, right? Mm -hmm. Because James, the brother of Jesus, who is the head of the community in Jerusalem, is uh, is watching out for this kind of thing. And then at the end of Galatians in chapter six, Paul alleges the people who are really insisting that you observe the law, namely James and company, are not doing it because they, they believe it. They're doing it to avoid heat on them because they represent the Christian movement. They're doing it to avoid persecution uh, raining down on their shoulders, right? Now, make what you will of that. That's in Galatians. But in the book of Acts, chapter 21, you have also a similar kind of situation. That is, Paul arrives in Jerusalem and he meets James. And uh, James says, look, we got a problem here. 
because everybody's heard about you, Paul, that you're going around teaching against the temple and against the Jewish people and against the law. So what are we going to do? We got a problem on our hands here. Well, here's a plan. Why don't you pay for the expensive sacrifice that goes with completing a Nazarite vow? Uh, why don't you do that and, uh, and, and show everybody that you are observing Jewish law? That will be a, a very politic thing to do right now. So both of these passages uh, provide some evidence that James, being Jesus' brother and closely connected with this guy who was already executed, uh, by, according to Josephus, the Jewish leadership in co collaboration with uh, Pontius Pilate, um, his brother is, is getting some heat for the behavior of Christians in general or Christ followers in general, even those of Paul's mission, which is to Gentiles. And so people in Jerusalem are getting very nervous. And remember that in Acts, in Acts 3 and 4 uh, in the New Testament, um, the high priests are said to be Sadducees, and they are the ones who really want to execute all the followers of Christ. And it's Gamaliel in, book, in chapter 5 of Acts who speaks up on behalf of the Christ followers. He's in the council, and he says, hold on a second. You know, let's take it easy. Uh, if we kill these guys, it might be from God, this movement. Uh, so why don't we just wait out and see what happens? If it's from God, it will flourish. If it isn't, well, it'll die anyway. So let, let's not be too harsh on it. But that's a, that's a leading Pharisee pitted against the Sadducean uh, high priests. And Acts is very clear about saying these guys were from the party of the Sadducees. So from my point of view, Again, uh, trying to come up with a hypothesis that explains what's behind these texts, it presents to me no problem at all. Um, I'm, I'm familiar with the argument that this was a different uh, James or Jacob, uh, um, the brother of the high priest, but I don't see what problem that solves. I don't see a what problem there is in the text. I, the text well, doesn't present any problems to me. It solves the problem of it talking about Jesus. That's a problem. <laughs> but, but why is it a why is it a problem? Yeah, yeah it's no, a I mean, it's a problem if you already think that the the book eighteen passage didn't exist. If Josephus didn't write the book eighteen passage, if you've already assumed that uh, the earlier reference to Jesus, right. then you have a puzzle. Well, you have a half a puzzle um, here. Uh, why would he mention? Why would he mention this Jesus known as Christ? But even there, it's not actually, <laughs> even if that were the case, it's not a big puzzle because this formulation known as, X known as Y, is very common in Josephus. Um, in his own uh, autobiography, he mentions, uh, re remember that there's only a very small number of names, right, that are very current, like Joseph, <laughs> uh, Jacob, uh, Simon, uh, these are Joshua, Jesus. These are very common names. In uh, if anybody's interested, a great scholar named Tal Ilan has a lexicon of ancient names, and you can actually see from inscriptions and so on. They've she's tabulated all the the, the frequency of names, both in literature and in material remains. 
So you can see there's only a handful of names, like a dozen names that are super common, Elazar, Simon, you know, all these names. So Josephus often, I, I would say characteristically, when he mentions one of these people, he will give them a nickname. He will say, you know, Elazar was known as this, or Elazar, the son of Ananias, or, you know, Matthias, the one known as the, uh, the hunchback or something, or the stutterer or something like that. And the name itself doesn't matter, right? It's just like that's it, like the meaning of the name doesn't matter. The meaning of the nickname doesn't matter. It's just that's what he was known as. So it's good enough for you. So, so uh, one of the audience asked the question that I think you just touched on, the phrase, the one known as Christos. Uh, uh, he, he asked if the phrase, the one known as Christos, was not original, would the identity of the Janes be sufficiently precise? But I think what you're saying is that it doesn't matter whether or not, like this is just how he was known. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't think it would be very precise. I mean, I don't think it would be characteristic of Josephus to write. Uh, oh, and 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 among them was Jacob. Yeah. Right. right. So so like he he clarified if he had just said James the brother of Jesus, that would be very ambiguous because there's Jameses and Jesuses running all over. So it wouldn't have been clear who he was talking about. Unless he's already just two volumes before. Remember that here he says that the Sadducees with regard to judicial issues are more cruel than all the others, as we have said before, he's referring to book 13. So that's mm -hmm. actually quite a long time ago he, he gave that information. And now if he says, uh, notice that the formulation is not, it's not James, the brother of Jesus, it is the brother of Jesus, the one known as Christ, Oh, his name is James, by the way. His name is, is Jacob. Right. That's a secondary point. The main point is he's the brother of that Jesus known as Christ. Well, if he wrote something about Jesus, as it appears, in it's in all the manuscripts in uh, book 18, then there's absolutely no problem with this. It makes perfect sense. I told you about a guy named Jesus. There In Josephus, there are, I think, 30 or 31 guys named Jesus um, uh, yeah. in, in all his writings. So it makes sense that this particular Jesus was known as uh, Christos. Um, that's just his nickname. You don't need to know what it means. That's just, he was called uh, the, the smeared guy. <laughs> that, that was actually a question I was gonna ask is that uh, another line of argument that's often put is Josephus wouldn't have said he was known as Christ unless he would take this time to explain to his readers exactly what Christ meant. But it seems to me like he's just saying who the Jesus is. And even if you don't know why he has this nickname, it doesn't really matter. You just, you know, that's the guy. It's the same throughout ancient literature. People had all kinds of funny names like Shorty, Blackie, uh, Chickpea, Cicero is Chickpea, right? Uh, Kikaro is a Chickpea. How they got these names is, is not relevant. It's their name. Right. And many of us today have names that actually we don't even know the etymology of them. But if you knew the etymology, it might surprise you. Um, like my last name is Mason. Um, does anybody think of an actual Mason when I introduce myself? Like, uh, you know, somebody working with stone? No, uh, it's just the name that my family acquired right. at some distant point. 
like like Smith. Right? Oh, I just thought you were part of the Illuminati or something like that. <laughs> well, obviously, yeah. There, yeah. There's a guy in our unit whose nickname was Butterbean, and I don't think anybody ever questioned why. It's just we said, "Oh yeah, that's Butterbean." They're like, "Okay." <laughs> yeah. But um, if I can ask, um, it sometimes it's said that Josephus would never use one of these nicknames without explaining it. But as somebody who's read quite a bit of Josephus, if not all of it. Is that something that he's done previously? Um, assuming we don't have the passage in 18. Um, yeah, yeah, he does it all the time. As I say, if you just look at the opening lines of his uh, autobiography, where he's naming his ancestors, and he's trying to sort them out because they have common names, like Mattathias or Matthias and Simon. So he gives them a name, like this guy was known as the hunchback, this guy was known as the stutterer. Um, uh, okay, so... You might ask, well, why was he called the stutterer? Why was he called the hunchback? And it's not necessarily the case that he was a hunchback or a, uh, right. maybe maybe the stutterer, probably, because that was a probable disqualification for being uh, serving in the temple as a priest. Um, and these may have been the things that disqualified them. But even um, even uh, um, uh, Judas Mac. I was trying to figure out which way to say it in English. Judas Maccabeus, right? Uh, Judah Mac Maccabi or Maccabi. His name means uh, hammer. So what does that mean? Well, you have, of course, all these glorious interpretations. He was the hammer. You know, he was the, right. the tough guy. But another study has uh, argued that if you look at his brother's nicknames, because they were not all Maccabees, that was his nickname. It wasn't it wasn't a family of Maccabees. Uh, their their family name was Hasmonean, or mm -hmm. sons of Asmoneus. But uh, that was his nickname. But if you look at the other nicknames, you see they are personal qualities. And so this person who wrote the article suggested actually he may have had a hammer head, right? Like <laughs> head shaped, <laughs> yeah. Like, because that would be more typically how you would acquire uh, such a nickname. So the fact that that Jesus was known as this smeared guy, um, uh, smeary or <laughs> oil, oily, 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 oily yeah. or um, is not is not actually that puzzling. Uh, it's nice if he explains what it means, but there's no reason he would, because that's it's not what you do with with personal names, right? Yeah, it makes sense. So and it's the same places, by the way. I mean, there are lots of places where. Uh, he says, and this was known as the something place. Right. Why, why it was known as that place? Well, he might tell you, he might not. Um, just... <laughs> That's good to put it in context. Uh, one of the other things that sometimes often claimed about this section in uh, 20 is that it was later interpolated by somebody who was had a pre, like a pro-Christian bent. And so they're writing it and they go, you know, this passage here, and they would say that it used to say, Jesus, you know, the son of Damnius, or, you know, and then they said, oh, that doesn't work. Let's replace that with Jesus, you know, the brother of Jesus, the one known as Christ. And they just kind of, but th that doesn't seem to work in this passage, though. Well, again, again, it could be. And this is what I ha have to reemphasize is that I'm not interested in uh, conclusions. Sure. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to me if, if it were James, the brother of Jesus, son of Damnius. But this is the only reference to Jesus. He's a nobody, right? Jesus, son of Demnias. He's just a name. Uh, this is his first 
the first anybody's heard of him in the story. And the last they will hear of him is when he's deposed um, for the next high priest. So this is in 203. By 213, he will be kicked out and the next high priest is in. So he's just the name. He's just the name of the next high priest. So if, I, if, if we hypothesize, okay, uh, let's say this actually was not uh, Jacob, the brother of the one known, Jesus known as Christos, who was mentioned earlier in the text, but he was the brother of this guy. Well, first of all, I don't see what problem that solves, right? Because I don't see a problem there. Right. The but if we hypothesize that, I still don't see how it works. Why, why would that help if... If he had said that, actually, back in the passage, uh, among them was the brother of Jesus, uh, the son of Damnaeus. Well, how would that help explain things? Um, because the main point is there are a bunch of people that, uh, that Ananus accused of uh, violating the laws, right? So mm -hmm. who, would, who would such people be and why? I don't see why that adds anything to our information or uh, explains anything in particular. It's not so. The point is, I'm not saying it's wrong, right? It's just the job of the historian isn't to take a position about what's right and wrong. It's to say, well, what problem am I exploring, right? First of all, tell me right. what the problem is, and then second, let's consider all the uh, hypotheses that might solve that problem. And that's, I'm simply telling you, I don't see what the problem is right. with text as it is. And if one said, well, this is a solution to some problem that I haven't noticed, how does it help me? I, I don't yeah. see that. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it sounds like it's a solution in search of a problem because the way that the text currently reads is not problematic at all. It fits Josephine's style. It fits with the story he's trying to tell in the context. And so there's, it's not like this sticks out in some kind of odd way. Is that a fair yeah, summary? And it, and it fits, as far as I know, his habits of, uh, of speech. Uh, speaking mean, part, quickly. Part of, the, part of the problem is, if I could just make this quick point, is that um, also with the, the bit in, uh, in book 18 about Jesus, right? Uh, you have, I, I think, the vast majority of opinions about that and elaborate discussions are not from people who work with Josephus uh, every day. And they're not dealing with Antiquities 1, 2, mm -hmm. 3, 4, right. 5, 6. Their, their interest is in early Christianity or something like that, or not early Christianity or whatever it is they're interested in. And then they come and seize on this passage, whichever one it is, in 18 or 20, and they have all kinds of interesting, creative, ingenious uh, uh hypotheses about them but the problem is let me give you an example i've just um i've just finished editing uh the commentary to antiquities 18 to 20 by my colleague in jerusalem uh danny schwartz professor daniel schwartz and you know he's an orthodox jew he's writing an israeli he's writing about this stuff he doesn't have any christian uh, uh inclinations or reasons to support christianity but he takes a very, what I would consider normal, 
view of these texts. He doesn't see a problem with them, even the one in 18, mm. actually. Now, obviously, there's something fishy with that one statement, he was the Christos, because it, it doesn't even say he was known as the Christos. It just says he was uh, Christos. So that's a bit of an odd formulation, and we need to explain that. But aside from that, you know, he just thinks uh, the passage pretty much makes sense um, coming from Josephus. But he's somebody who works in Josephus uh, all the time. And Josephus' texts are full of surprises everywhere, all, all the way through war, antiquities. If you're used to that kind of thing, you're not so inclined to turn to deductive reasoning about these passages and say, well, why would he say that? That doesn't make any sense. Right. Well, yeah, it doesn't make any sense to you, maybe, but if, <laughs> if, if you're familiar with his normal way of doing things, it's, it's not actually, there, there are a lot bigger surprises uh, in book two of the war, book four of the war, all kinds of loose hanging threads and things like that. So anyway, yeah. I wanted to yeah. make that. Make that's that. why we asked you on, because you are familiar with all this stuff. So. Right. It's easy to say that this is something that Josephus would never do if you've never read anything about Josephus except for this one passage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and here here I'm not saying that I know all, right, all. Sure. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that um, if that's what you do, and it's not just reading Josephus, it's having to struggle with. Uh, so I've translated uh, book two and book four of the war line by line, word by word, looked at manuscript variants you know, for every passage um, like that text I showed you before, that's what my daily dose was, you know, look at this passage, what are all the variant readings, what's going on here, and, and in his autobiography as well. And then I've edited many other volumes by colleagues where I've had to go through and look at what they've done with the same, doing the same thing, right? So it's not just reading Josephus, it's also having to actually struggle with the manuscripts and the Greek text and I can assure you there are many more big surprises in mm. other volumes of Josephus than, than these. That's all I'm trying to say. Right. It's, not that, it's not that I know what he wrote or I'm sure that this was the case. I'm just trying to say when you weigh hypotheses, uh, your experience comes into play. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about hypothesis testing and seeing which, I mean, any explanation could be right, but which one most yeah. naturally fits with the evidence and yeah. if there's no problem why seek why seek to fix it basically and i could be wrong i could be wrong um it, uh, i'm just saying i don't see the problem <laughs> but if others see a problem more power to them and i i don't criticize them for that i think you know everybody should make their arguments make their cases and that's fine i'm not i would be the last person to try to you know censor anybody or say they shouldn't do that so uh since we're coming on two hours and I want to be respectful of your time, uh, just to summarize real quick this part, and uh, you can tell me if I'm getting it right. Uh, Josephus is telling the story at the end of Antiquities, uh, the, basically the series of high priests, how they came in and out of office. And he's uh, he tends to tell the story, add a human element, and then talk about whether the person was like good or bad and whether they did good things. And in this case, there's a high priest who did some bad things in Josephus' view. And one of those bad things is this particular execution, but he mentions other people. And then because of that, he was deposed and all of that fits well with the context that, and the story that Josephus is trying to tell. Exactly. With one, one important qualification I should mention, uh, which is another of the big surprises that 
is relevant here. Uh, in war, this very Ananus II appears as a shining example of morality and virtue. All right. Okay. Um, and he, in his murder, is the centerpiece of war. It's in the middle of Book Four of the War. But in his later autobiography, again, Josephus will treat this Ananus very, very uh, well. Now you could say, well, that's a, that's a big problem. Yeah, it is. But it's also <laughs> characteristic of all of antiquities, thirteen to twenty, that and the Vita, the, the autobiography, that he changes uh, characters around, changes the story, makes good guys into bad guys, and vice versa, all the way through. Uh, I mean, I could give you a hundred examples, but he just does that. And it's very disconcerting for the historian. But that's also typical of Josephus. And it's it's also something that's not brought up when people focus on um, who the James is here. Because as I said, the passage isn't about James, it's about Ananus. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's something people tend to just ignore. But it's actually quite fascinating. Um, that is interesting yeah. and i think it it shows josephus is like as a human being who's writing a story not you know this just mouthpiece of you know facts right, right. and you can't put him in a bias box yeah yeah <laughs> we can try oh. uh so we do have so we do have some questions to the audience a couple super chats i don't want to take up too much of your time uh, is there anything that we didn't talk about the antiquities package or josephus in general that you wished we had touched on that you wanted to make sure that got said no. Okay. Great. Okay. <laughs> so, shortest uh, answer I've given. <laughs> excellent. Uh, so, we'll start with the super chats. Uh, we have a super chat for $2 from Nebulin. Uh, he did it on behalf of someone else. He, They were curious if you believe that Moses was a historical person. Um, first, first answer is history is not about belief. And I don't mean to be sarcastic about this, but it it fits into what I was saying before, mm -hmm. that too much discussion is about what you believe as a historian. I don't believe anything. Um, I don't not believe anything. Um, I'm an investigator. So Moses is not in my, um, my field of uh, specialization. Um, and then you have the question, what do you mean by Moses, right? It's like the question of the historical Jesus. Do you believe there was a Jesus? Well, which Jesus? Matthew's Jesus? No. That's Matthew's Jesus. Mark's Jesus? No. Was there a guy named Joseph? Uh, Jesus? Yeah, there are lots of guys named Jesus. Um, so was there a chap named Moses? Well, you know, then you have the etymology of the name. What does it mean? Uh, Sigmund Freud wrote about that in Moses and monotheism. And, you know, lots of people have written about it. I think if you mean... Was there a Moses like the Moses described in, you know, Exodus? Um, well, I doubt that very much, uh, just because that's a, that's a literary account of Moses. Um, was there a guy named Moses who did some great things, uh, the founder of somehow the laws? Quite possibly, I don't know. But it's not my field, uh, and that, that would need to be investigated, has been investigated vigorously by specialists so i i have no opinion on the subject totally fair yeah uh 
so this one's from Savage for ten dollars. Thank you very much. Slightly off topic, but how does Josephus portray the rebellion he participated in to earlier small insurrections against the Romans and the Maccabean revolt? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, the short answer is he doesn't. Uh, that is, he doesn't compare it with smaller things um, and doesn't compare it explicitly with the uh, Hasmonean Revolt uh, because he's he's emphasizing how catastrophic it was and how, I mean, it's really the end for Jerusalem. Well, for now, anyway, the end of the temple and the city and his war is really written as a kind of tragedy right about this catastrophic moment and even as i said in antiquities he's building up toward that ethos of you know tragedy so it's not like it has parallels uh, but um he does draw uh parallels with the first destruction of jerusalem uh under um the neo-babylonians and compares himself even to jeremiah who was a prophet at that time uh, he doesn't call himself a prophet, but he does uh, uh, kind of analogize himself to Jeremiah, who was also persecuted and um, treated badly by his, his compatriots. So Josephus says, you know, you're kind of doing the same thing to me that they did to Jeremiah back then. But the Hesmian revolt is really interesting in another way, is, is that its lessons... Um, I don't believe that history teaches lessons. So, um, uh, but it's that, and part of the reason for that is different people can draw different lessons from the same events. And the Hasmonean revolt is really interesting that way because it seems clear that many of the more militant Jews living in the first century looked to the Hasmonean revolt as a kind of model. It was successful. We were able to create a Jewish state by revolting from the Seleucid uh, regime. So, you know, maybe we should try that now. God will help us if we do. But the lessons of the Hasmonean revolt were differently construed by different people, different groups, right? So one approach was, hey, they picked up arms and they succeeded. Josephus is very proud of his Hasmonean roots. And he makes that clear uh, both in Antiquities, Antiquities 16, and in his autobiography, where he traces his priestly roots through the Hasmonean dynasty. So he's he's big on the Hasmoneans. He names one of his sons Hyrcanus, and Hyrcanus was his favorite Hasmonean uh, ruler as well. So he's really big on Hasmoneans, but he does not think that the lesson to be learned from them was that we should take up arms uh, and fight the Romans. He rather thinks that what they were good at was uh, diplomatic footwork. So his account of the Hasmoneans in book one of the war is about how they quickly kept changing sides and making alliances with this person and that person. And they were very smart um, diplomatically and politically, and they were able to maximize the benefit of being allied with this person or that person to increase their gains as allies. So even the Seleucids, whom they had revolted against under Antiochus IV, they made a, an alliance with Antiochus V, right? And he becomes their ally, and they become allies of subsequent Seleucid rulers because as the Seleucid dynasty is falling apart, they can link up with one or another faction of it and, you, and leverage that to increase their gains. So he has a very sophisticated 
uh, view, I think, of uh, what the Hasmonean legacy was. And I would say that's maybe you asked me if there's anything else I want to say. Let me make that point that Josephus to me is the reason I feel I just scratched the surface with him is I think he's a very profound uh, analyst, actually, of big, big questions like what is a political community? How do you resolve conflicts? Uh, how do you deal with a greater power being uh, subject to the greater power? What does freedom mean? What is ideal political freedom? Is it radical freedom, complete autonomy, or do you find greatest freedom within a, a larger political framework of some kind? These are questions that he talks about endlessly, but they've been almost entirely neglected uh, because people are just focused on the facts and you right. know um, his biases and stuff like that. But I think he's actually way, way more interesting than that. It's awesome. So we have, if you have time for another, maybe three minutes, two more quick oh, questions. Go for it, uh, at your disposal. From DM, uh, he's curious, because we mentioned uh, Christian scribes transcribing and preserving Josephus. Uh, he's curious if there were any Muslim scribes who were preserving Josephus uh, at the same time. Uh, not that we know of. Uh, I should have mentioned that in uh, Jewish circles, there was a, so I mentioned that the Christian reworking of Josephus in something called the, um, uh, we call pseudo Aegisippus or De Excidio, uh, about the fall of Jerusalem. This is a Christian Latin reworking of Josephus. And, 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 and when you wonder what Christian uh, interpolators would do, here's a guy who really goes for it. He just takes Josephus' text, strips out all the Jewish bits. He doesn't like <laughs> explanations everywhere and says, you know, the, the, they deserved it because they killed Christ. And he just, he just inserts it into, into Josephus. But we don't find that in the Greek text of Josephus. But later in the 10th century, uh, that Latin version of Josephus was so popular, that corrupt Christian version, that a, that a Jewish scholar did a re-Judaization of <laughs> Josephus called, uh, we call it Sefer Yosipon, the book of Yosipon, which is a corruption of Josephus's name. And this scholar apparently didn't know about Josephus' original text, but he just assumed this guy's Jewish. He must have written, like, because the Christian author complained about how Jewish Josephus was. So this guy basically undid the Christianization and re-Judaized Josephus. As without the, having the original. Without having the original. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is Sefer Yosipon. And it may well have been um, uh, read by by Muslims, but we don't have any uh, we don't have any clear tradition in Islam about Josephus, hmm. as far as I know. But that's also not my my, my special area. Uh, we have one last question, which this may not be something you're interested in diving into. Feel free to pass if you want to. Uh, Kip wants to know if you have any opinion on the Joshua Christ motif that Carrier constructs from failed Messiah figures in his book, Car Richard Carrier, the mythicist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, um, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't get into it. I know some of Richard's uh, stuff. I've read uh, a couple of his articles, and I had one, I have one of his books. I just gave away my most of my library. You can see the remains behind me, but 
my entire first floor was filled with water. <laughs> and I gave it away to, uh, to a, a research institute in uh, Slovakia, which, um, you know, was short of funds uh, for starting up. It's the first Josephus Research Institute in the world that I know about. So I, uh, so I donated my library to them. And, yeah. and Richard's book, uh, alas, went with, with uh, the, the rest of the library. Um, I kept only archaeological stuff that's harder to, uh, to find in digital form. Uh, mm. So anyway, um, so I wouldn't, uh, I have all respect for Richard's work, but I, um, I shouldn't uh, engage it because it's not fresh in my mind. That's totally completely fair. fair. Totally yep. fair. Uh, and that is the end of the questions we had. Uh, Steve, this has been awesome. Like I said, I could listen to this period of history we talked about like forever. Uh, so if other people like me enjoy uh, the topic of your research, where should they look to find your work? And like, if they want to learn more about what you do, where should they find that? Um, yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for, <laughs> for that. Um, I don't know. Uh, I think on Amazon, uh, if you look me up as an author, there's a there's an author thing that connects all my uh, my public well my book publications anyway. Um, the problem is, I can tell you in advance, that much of my book is much of my uh, book writing is academic. Yeah, uh, it is te technical, um, and you know it has a lot of Greek in it. Um, so it may not, and uh, the, the main point is it's expensive. <laughs> that's the that's the crucial point as a result of that. So some of these books are like 180 euros or something like that. It's 200 dollars. Um, they're just ridiculously priced, but it's because they are with academic publishers and and produced for academic libraries in sewn bindings with acid-free paper that will last you know generations. Um, that's why they're so expensive. Uh, because the main thing was to make a contribution to scholarship with these books. Mm -hmm. um, but the books that are more readily available are uh, things like Josephus in the New Testament, uh, which came out in 2003, um, and it's inexpensive. Uh, also a book I did in 2016 called uh, Orientation to the History of Roman Judea, and it's uh, meant for a general audience on historical method. And the same year, uh, my Cambridge University Press book, uh, History of the Jewish War, came out. And I think in paperback, it's not uh, ridiculously expensive uh, from them. And it's a, it's, it's a study of, it's, a, it's meant to embody the principles we've been talking about. That is, first of all, interpret what we've got. And then second, conduct investigations into particular problems related to the Jewish war. So, yeah, that's, that's what I can recommend. Thank you for the question. Um, but yeah, a lot of it is very expensive and that's, uh, I, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, you get what you pay for. <laughs> uh, so, not always. Not always. <laughs> <laughs> not always. <laughs> uh, so thanks again for coming. Uh, thanks to the audience for catching us all the way to the end. Uh, I just wanted to shout out real quick. Uh, we do have a Patreon now. So if you want to get most of our videos early, you can't get live streams early because of the way time works. But other videos you can get about a week early when we do them. Uh, you can join MJ Zell, who is our very first patron, uh, if you want to have access to that. Uh, but anyway, I won't keep you any longer. Thanks a lot, Steve, for joining us. And remember, everybody, you've always got reason to doubt. Peace Thank out. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, Thank yeah you. definitely.